Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, April 14th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Melissa Topsher. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The U.S. arrests a suspect in connection to the leaking of secret documents. A U.S. court preserves limited access to abortion pill mifepristone amid an ongoing legal battle. Iran is accused of using the death penalty to instill fear following a 75% surge in executions. North Korea fires a possible new type of ballistic missile. Syria's foreign minister visits Saudi Arabia for the first time since 2011. U.S. inflation eases to 5%, its lowest since 2021. A spokesperson alleges Putin critic Navalny may be being slowly poisoned in jail. Trump sues his ex-lawyer Michael Cohen. Biden proposes tighter privacy rules around abortions. And Ghana becomes the first country to approve Oxford's malaria vaccine. In our top story, the U.S. arrests a suspect in connection to a Ukraine documents leak. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Washington Post, Declassified Media Limited, Ukrainska Pravda, Seymour Hersh, and The Guardian. On Thursday, the U.S. arrested 21-year-old Air National Guard Jack Tashira in connection to a leak of dozens of classified U.S. military documents detailing intelligence on the war in Ukraine and other sensitive information. The Massachusetts resident is reportedly due to appear in court today. This follows a Washington Post report that shared details of a conversation with a teenager who frequented Discord, a server popular with gamers, where the information was posted. He described himself as a friend of the suspect who went by OG and was reportedly impressed with the information he provided. He said he knew the real identity and location of the OG, but added that he wouldn't share it with law enforcement. According to one file, there was nearly 100 Special Forces personnel from NATO countries operating in Ukraine, 50 of which came from the UK. Latvia had 17, France 15, the US 14, and one came from the Netherlands. The U.S. had a total of 29 Pentagon personnel in Ukraine, in addition to 71 State Department employees, according to reporting from Declassified UK. Another document from the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency forecasts that irrespective of Ukrainian or Russian gains, there's unlikely to be a peace agreement in 2023 and that the war will likely drag into next year. Elsewhere, Russia's Federal Security Service, the FSB, alleged on Thursday that Ukraine's intelligence service masterminded the blast at a St. Petersburg cafe that killed the Russian military blogger Vladin Tatarsky and injured dozens more earlier this month. The FSB posted pictures of Ukrainian citizen Yuri Denisov, his driving license, and images of him passing through Russian customs. It said he cultivated ties with local opposition groups in order to carry out the attack. Meanwhile, in the latest from Seymour Hersh, the veteran investigative journalist alleged that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and his inner circle have been skimming U.S. taxpayer funds earmarked for diesel fuel intended for the military. Furthermore, he claimed that Ukraine was buying the fuel directly from Russia. Citing U.S. intelligence sources, Hersh reported that the CIA estimated around $400 million was embezzled from U.S. funds last year alone. Further afield, Belarus has extradited Alexei Miskalyov back to Russia. The father was sentenced to two years in prison but fled house arrest prior to his final court date after his 13-year-old daughter drew anti-war pictures in school. He was detained in Belarus two days after the fleeing. Thank you, Eric, for laying down the facts on that story. And on this show, we separate the facts from the narrative spin. We'll start with a pro-establishment narrative from the New York Post. 
These leaks contain U.S. military secrets that have no business existing in the public domain. Publicizing them damages U.S. national security and that of its allies. The press should do the responsible thing and refrain from reporting on them. The establishment critical narrative comes from Politico. Whenever there's a leak of classified documents, officials always claim there's a national security risk and that it puts soldiers in harm's way. However, the cat's already out of the bag on this occasion, and the Pentagon should be focused on bringing the alleged perpetrator to justice, not on obstructing the press from doing their jobs. And we have a nerd narrative says there's a 25% chance that there will be a large-scale armed conflict in Russia before 2030. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. What's that old saying, Melissa? Loose lips sinks ships? That's right. Well, what are the ships in this scenario? Loose computers sink shooters. Perfect. I like it. That's the uh, 21st century version. I'm workshopping it. That's fine. We'll take it. <laughs> Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey. And tell us what you think. And now back to the news. In our next story, a U.S. court preserves limited access to abortion pills. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, Reuters, the Detroit News, and NPR Online News. The U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans, Louisiana, ruled 2 to 1 Wednesday to keep the abortion pill Mifepristone available for purchase with some restrictions, partially overturning a lower court judge's ruling in Texas last week. The court doesn't wholly overturn the Texas ruling, which suspended the FDA approval of the drug pending litigation but it does require in-person doctor visits to prescribe and dispense the pill and limit its use to the first seven weeks of pregnancy. The two judges who voted to tighten restrictions were Trump-appointed Kurt Engelhart and Andrew Oldham. The dissenter was George W. Bush appointee Katerina Haynes, who favored putting the Texas ruling on hold to allow for oral arguments. The FDA, which first approved the pill more than 20 years ago, expanded its use in 2016 to the first 10 weeks of pregnancy and allowed for it to be dispensed by mail without any need to visit a doctor's office. The Texas ruling, considered to be the first time a single judge overruled the medical authority of the FDA, gave the Biden administration seven days to appeal before the temporary ban goes into effect. The Texas plaintiff, the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, alleged the FDA was wrong in its original approval. As both sides are expected to appeal the decision to the Supreme Court, U.S. VP Kamala Harris on Wednesday joined the Task Force on Reproductive Health Care Access to discuss abortion access across the nation. Melissa, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a Republican narrative coming from Washington Examiner. Critics of Texas Judge Matthew Kaczmarek's original decision are purposefully ignoring the procedural arguments he made. He isn't banning the abortion pill for political reasons, but rather due to the FDA's failure 20 years ago to test the drug on girls under 18 or evaluate its psychological or long-term medical consequences. The FDA's approval was politically motivated, not Judge Kaczmarek's legal decision. And here's the Democratic narrative from the New York Times. Judge Kaczmarek's ruling was so absurd that even a panel of three Republican-appointed judges had to strike it down partially. Mifepristone has been safely on the market for decades, and it wasn't until a single anti-abortion judge decided he didn't like it that it faced restrictions. More than half of pregnancy terminations consist of medication abortions, and the FDA must be given its power back to ensure vulnerable women aren't barred from exercising their right to bodily autonomy. 
The nerds from Metaculus are giving us their opinion as well. They say there's a 5% chance that elective abortion will be banned nationally in the United States before the year 2030. According to a special report, there's a 75% surge in Iran executions. Here are the facts as agreed upon by France 24, Al Arabia, Voice of America, Euro News, Daily Mail, and NPR Online News. The Norway-based Iran Human Rights and Paris-based Together Against the Death Penalty published a report on Thursday claiming that Iran's execution machine hanged 75% more people in 2022 than in previous years. There were at least 582 executions in 2022, reportedly the highest since 2015, and well above the 333 hangings reported in 2021. Citing the September protests last year, the group said four protesters have been executed and that 100 others remain at risk of death penalty charges, sentences, and execution. The report alleges that Iran uses the death penalty to, quote, instill fear among the population and to intimidate and oppress people to, quote, maintain the stability of its power. This comes after Amnesty International reported in March that children as young as 12 are being raped, electrocuted, and flogged for participating in protests against Iran's morality police. Anti-government demonstrations broke out across the country in September 2022, sparked by the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini in police custody, who was arrested for allegedly violating the country's strict dress code. Thank you, Eric, for the facts on that story. We'll begin with a pro-establishment narrative from Times of Israel. The brutality of Iran's autocratic leaders in stifling dissent knows no bounds, as Iranians are being slaughtered in their quest for freedom from the Middle East's most ruthless regime. These protesters deserve the world's support, as human rights are being weaponized in the country. The establishment critical narrative coming from Press TV. Though the West prefers to hype Iran's executions, it deliberately ignores the fact that Ayatollah Saeed Ali Khamenei recently pardoned 90,000 people to mark the 44th anniversary of the Islamic Revolution. Western-backed rioters tried to set Iran on fire, but thankfully, they failed, as Iran has implemented strict but fair enforcement of the rule of law. And there's another nerd narrative saying there's a 50% chance that Iran will cease to be an Islamic Republic by 2035. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. North Korea fires a possible new type of ballistic missile. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, the Associated Press, BBC News, DW, the Japan Times, and Korea Times. South Korean news outlet YTN, citing a military official, reported that North Korea on Thursday possibly test-fired a new type of medium-range or longer ballistic missile, which according to Seoul's Joint Chiefs of Staff, flew for about 1,000 kilometers, 620 miles, before landing in waters between the Korean Peninsula and Japan. Seoul says this launch may have been Pyongyang's first test of a more maneuverable and harder-to-detect solid-fueled intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM, in contrast to liquid-propellant ICBMs previously tested by North Korea. Japan promptly issued an evacuation order for the northern island of Hokkaido on Thursday morning, revoking it within 30 minutes as the missile didn't land near the island. It wasn't confirmed whether the missile flew over the country's exclusive economic zone. The U.S. expressed its strong condemnation of what it referred to as the test of a long-range ballistic missile, accusing Pyongyang of violating U.N. Security Council resolutions and fomenting regional tensions. 
This test fire comes two days after North Korean leader Kim Jong-un called for bolstering the country's war deterrent in a more practical and offensive way to deal with what he deemed aggressive moves by the U.S. and South Korea. Last week, state-run KCNA news agency reported that Pyongyang had carried out another test of nuclear-capable underwater attack drone, the third since the North made public its secret weapons that allegedly could provoke a radioactive tsunami. Melissa, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Washington Examiner. By launching its new weapon system, Pyongyang isn't only blatantly violating UN resolutions, yet again, but is also further increasing regional tensions through its increasingly aggressive stance. The North Korean regime must finally come to its senses and accept Washington's offer for serious negotiations. Otherwise, the U.S. will be forced to take further steps to protect its own security and that of its allies. And here's an establishment critical narrative from Ruptly TV. While pretending to seek stability in the region, the U.S. is concerning North Korea with its ongoing military drills and deployment of strategic weapons systems around the peninsula. Both Pyongyang and Washington should exercise restraint and work on the conditions for serious dialogue. Instead of constantly stoking tensions, the U.S. should take concrete steps to address North Korea's legitimate security concerns. Metaculous Prediction Community also has a nerd narrative for this story. There's a 33% chance that North Korea will have enough fizzle material to produce at least 100 warheads before 2024. I don't know. This is the first time I've ever heard an expression like um, radioactive tsunami. That oh, sounds... yeah. No, I mean, a regular tsunami? Not super great. Not something you want to be around, right? No. But a radioactive one? Oh, man. It's like, uh, you know, we're just taking all the bad things these days and seeing how we can compound them, like the bomb cyclone and the, uh, what's the other one we had here on the West Coast? Atmospheric River. That's what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> Our next story is coming from Syria as a foreign minister makes his first visit to Saudi Arabia since 2011. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Jerusalem Post, Al Monitor, Al Arabia, and Times of Israel. Syria's Foreign Minister Faisal Mekdad arrived in the Saudi Arabian city of Jeddah on Wednesday after reportedly being invited by his Saudi counterpart, Prince Faisal bin Farhan, as relations between Damascus and the Arab world move toward normalization. The Saudi Foreign Ministry reported that the two ministers were expected to discuss a political solution to the Syrian crisis that, quote, preserves the unity, security, and stability of Syria, facilitates the return of Syrian refugees, and ensures humanitarian aid access. Arab governments across the region have been making moves in recent years to normalize relations with Syria, which were almost completely broken off in 2011 due to the onset of a political crisis and civil war in the country. Many Arab nations, including Saudi Arabia, supported armed groups in Syria's war. However, the U.S. has been more hesitant regarding normalization, with the National Security Council, or NSC, official saying in response to Mekdad's visit that we will not normalize relations with the Assad regime absent real progress towards a political solution to the underlying conflict. It has also been reported that Syria may soon re-enter the Arab League, with Saudi Arabia set to host several regional leaders on Friday to discuss the topic. The visit also comes as a number of major developments have occurred in the Middle East, specifically last month's Chinese-brokered announcement that Iran and Saudi Arabia, who have backed opposing sides in conflicts across the region, including Syria, would work towards resuming ties. Thanks, Eric, and we'll start this round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative. This is from the Middle East Eye. 
It's no surprise that Arab dictatorships, which are some of the most brutal authoritarian regimes in the world, are rushing to rehabilitate Bashar al-Assad's dictatorship in Syria. Though Assad butchered his own people with barrel bombs and chemical weapons, now that supporting the opposition to his rule is not politically expedient, the Gulf monarchies are more than happy to bring him back to the Arab fold. An establishment critical narrative comes from al-Mayadeen. Though imperialist forces in the region, namely the U.S., are trying to sabotage Syria's return to the Arab fold, the path to normalization seems quite certain at this point. Though the West, alongside its regional cronies in the Gulf, waged war against Syria and Assad's government, it's time to move past this and look to the future in a multipolar world order that's not dictated by the whims of the West. There's also a cynical narrative from Al-Arabia. Though it's apparent that Assad is a criminal and a butcher, the West and its allies' posture toward his regime has borne no fruit in terms of ending Syria's conflict. Ultimately, after 12 years of war, Assad, alongside Russian and Iranian support, has essentially defeated the opposition, and it's time to allow for his regime to re-enter the Arab fold, regardless of how the U.S. feels about it. Syria, though a brotherly nation, will likely be held at arm's length for the foreseeable future, nonetheless. The Arab fold sounds like uh, some kind of like unattainable magician's trick, right? Or like a like a balloon animal. Like, <laughs> Can you complete the Arab fold? None have done it so far and live to tell the tale. <laughs> <laughs> U.S. inflation eases to 5%, the lowest since 2021. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, The Hill, The Guardian, CNN, and Forbes. The U.S. Labor Department reported Wednesday that the Consumer Price Index, or CPI, a key measure of U.S. prices, rose 0.1% in March and 5% since last year, less than Dow Jones estimates and its slowest pace since 2021. Egg prices fell 10.9%, the largest month-to-month decline recorded in 36 years, and down from 70.1% in January, but still 36% higher compared to one year ago helping offset other rising food prices and bringing total grocery prices down to 0.3%. However, core inflation, which excludes volatile energy and food prices, has remained steady at 5.6% over the last year, compared to February's 5.5%, signaling that lower gas prices, in contrast to record highs last year, may have driven the slower pace of total inflation. Meanwhile, because most apartment rents are fixed, rent prices tend to be less volatile than other categories, with the Bureau of Labor Statistics reporting rental data every six months. Because of this, rent costs take longer than other categories to reflect market changes. To combat inflation, the Federal Reserve, or the Fed, has made nine interest rate hikes since March of last year, with some analysts predicting that the latest numbers could potentially contribute to a pause in further increases at the Fed's upcoming meeting on May 2nd and 3rd. Thank you, Melissa. This story has generated three different spins, the first one being a Democratic narrative coming from KTEN. After a year of soaring prices dominating the public's attention, the tide may be turning. Actions taken by the Biden administration and the Fed have been successful, and inflation is no longer considered an emergency issue. With the CPI standing at an annual rate rise of 5%, its lowest level since 2021, painful interest rate hikes could soon ease. And here's the Republican narrative from the Daily Mail. While a welcomed sign, inflation is still way too high, and American families are struggling to stay afloat. Democrats have neither answers nor solutions. Their tax and spending policies only worsen the economic burden on families. 
Yet Biden wants taxpayers to foot the bill for his $6.9 trillion budget spree that will send inflation soaring even higher. The Metaculous Prediction community is giving us a nerd narrative as well. They say there's a 50% chance that the annual headline CPI inflation in the U.S. will be at least 4.9% in 2023. In our next story, a spokesperson alleges that Putin critic Navalny may be being slowly poisoned in jail. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Insider, Al Jazeera, ABC News, and The Hill. Alexei Navalny, Russia's most prominent opposition politician, is grappling with severe stomach pain in jail, which his spokesperson Kira Yarmish claims could be the result of slow-acting poison. Navalny's attorney, Vadim Kobzev, claims that after an ambulance was called to the prison last week, doctors refused to treat him, adding that the colony also refuses to administer medicine Navalny's mother sends. In a video clip on Twitter, Yarmish said that after the unknown ailment flared up last week, prison doctors injected Navalny with an unidentified medicine. She says she hasn't ruled out that her client is, quote, being slowly poisoned. Navalny has suffered similar conditions in the past, with his lawyers also claiming he may have been poisoned in the spring of 2021 after suffering from a separate alleged poisoning in August 2020. Currently, Navalny is serving an 11-and-a-half-year prison sentence on charges of fraud, embezzlement, and breaking parole conditions when he traveled to Germany for medical treatment. Meanwhile, Moscow claims it has no knowledge of Navalny's health condition, which it says falls under the federal penitentiary services reach. In the past, the prison administration has denied allegations of mistreatment. Thank you, Eric, for the facts. We'll start this round of spins with an anti-Russia narrative from CNN. There's no doubt that the Kremlin wants to silence Navalny, an outspoken critic of President Vladimir Putin, given its politically motivated charges against him. Regardless of whether these allegations of poisoning hold water, considering his repeated illnesses during his stints in isolated prison cells, they must be seriously investigated. A pro-Russian narrative comes from TASS. Alexei Navalny's claims of being poisoned by Russian authorities haven't been proven false on multiple occasions. The truth is that Navalny is a convicted criminal that the West is using to mold new pretexts for anti-Russian sentiment. Any health issues he's having while in solitary confinement have been properly addressed, and continued allegations of a mysterious poisoning plot are farcical. Trump sues his ex-lawyer Michael Cohen. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, Fox News, and BBC News. Former U.S. President Donald Trump on Wednesday sued his former lawyer, Michael Cohen, for at least $500 million, accusing him of failing to adhere to attorney-client privileges. This comes after Cohen testified before a Manhattan grand jury that indicted Trump, who pleaded not guilty to 34 felony counts of falsifying business records related to a payment made through Cohen to adult film actress Stormy Daniels prior to the 2016 presidential election. The lawsuit filed in a federal court in Florida accuses Cohen of multiple breaches of fiduciary duty, unjust enrichment, conversions and breaches of contract, by allegedly spreading falsehoods about Trump with malicious intent in two books, a podcast, and numerous media appearances. Cohen was Trump's lawyer for over a decade and served as vice president of the Trump Organization. In 2018, Cohen pleaded guilty to fraud and campaign finance violations related to the Daniels payment and was sentenced to three years in prison. Lainey Davis, a lawyer and spokesperson for Cohen, denied the accusations and said the former Trump lawyer would continue to cooperate with prosecutors. Those are the facts, and our first spin is a Democratic narrative coming from New York Times. 
As speculated by Davis, this lawsuit is right out of Trump's long-used playbook. The former president's decades of dealing with criminal and civil investigations have taught him how to weaponize the legal system to silence, or at least discredit, his critics and those liable to expose him. Recent attempts to use this play, however, have backfired, and it doesn't look like this will deter Cohen. And here's a pro-Trump narrative from Town Hall. Before and after he served time for his felonious actions around the Daniels payment, Cohen capitalized on his relationship with Trump to enrich himself while breaching his contract. This suit has nothing to do with Trump's fraudulent arraignment and everything to do with a bitter employee. If Cohen believes he has a right to continue besmirching the former president, he should have no problem answering for it in court. And once again with this story, we have a nerd narrative coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. It says there's a 33% chance Trump will be jailed or incarcerated before 2030. I'm surprised that percentage isn't higher than that. Yeah, that's interesting because I feel like way before the indictments, there was a 33% chance. Yeah. More U.S. news as Biden proposes tighter privacy rules around abortions. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Politico, The New Republic, NASDAQ, and The Tablet. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has proposed new privacy protections to prevent women's health information from being used to take legal action or investigate individuals who have had or have helped the occurrence of an abortion. The proposal was issued Wednesday with the intent to be added to the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA. The same day, Vice President Kamala Harris met with the White House Task Force on Reproductive Health Care Access to discuss the potential new rule. The rule states that if an organization receives a request for private health information, the request must be paired with a, quote, signed attestation that the use or disclosure of the information isn't for a prohibited purpose. The proposal is reportedly intended to protect women living in states where abortion is illegal who have or intend to travel across state lines for the medical procedure. The rule is to be finalized following a 60-day public comment period. Companies including J.P. Morgan, Amazon, and Disney have previously stated that they would pay travel costs for employees seeking out-of-state abortions and would provide reimbursement through company health care plans. It's currently unclear whether the proposed rule would, in reality, limit criminal investigations. This comes as Idaho Governor Brad Little recently signed legislation, the first of its kind, barring adults from helping minors get an abortion without parental consent. Idaho borders states such as Washington, Oregon, and Montana, where abortion is legal. And we'll start this round of spins with the Democratic narrative from Boston Globe. While Idaho's interstate abortion travel ban is as extreme as it sounds, the law doesn't go nearly as far as many abortion opponents want. If a national ban doesn't work, pro-lifers will ban any such travel within the U.S. As evidenced by the overturning of Roe v. Wade, Progressive shield laws are becoming ever more important as sentiments against interstate abortion continue to grow. We counter that with a Republican narrative coming from Fox News. Criticism of abortion interstate travel bans and attempts to prosecute those who perform such actions are leaving out a key detail. So far, laws such as Idaho's only apply to unemancipated minors, a factor that has been noticeably absent from media reactions. Such laws still sit on the right side of the Constitution and are being spun wildly out of proportion by the opposition. And there's a cynical narrative from the Daily Camera. Regardless of one's opinion on the matter of abortion, the divisions between state laws are growing and becoming increasingly unsustainable. 
Major issues such as abortions, gun rights, and public schools are by nature divisive. However, considering the can of worms that the Supreme Court opened last summer, the need for Congress to codify a national policy regarding abortion rights is essential. Only this way can a middle ground be carved out in which many can find comfort. And in our final story today, Ghana approves an Oxford malaria vaccine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, The Star, Africa News, and the World Health Organization. On Thursday, Ghana became the first country to approve a breakthrough malaria vaccine for children aged 5 months to 36 months, the age group at the highest risk of death from the parasitic disease. Preliminary studies show the R21 vaccine, developed by Oxford University scientists, was up to 80% effective when given in three initial doses and a booster 12 months later. The vaccine contains Matrix M, a saponin-based adjuvant used in Novavax's COVID vaccine that boosts the antigen-specific immune system response. Though widespread use of the R21 vaccine depends on the results of a final Phase three trial involving nearly 5,000 children, the Serum Institute of India is preparing to produce up to 200 million doses a year. Meanwhile, regulatory agencies such as the World Health Organization have yet to approve it. In 2021, a vaccine by British drug maker GSK became the first malaria vaccine to be recommended for widespread use by the World Health Organization. However, its effectiveness was about 60%, well below the WHO's efficacy target of 75%. According to the latest WHO data, there were approximately 247 million malaria cases and 619,000 deaths in 2021 with the African region reporting about 95% of all malaria cases and 96% of deaths. Melissa, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from Indian Express. The R21 vaccine is a significant milestone in combating malaria, one of the world's biggest killers. It's a massive breakthrough for millions of Africans, including children and pregnant women, as it could help reduce malaria deaths by over 70%. The vaccine, a more powerful and less expensive version of GSK's, isn't perfect, but it will help turn the tide. Narrative B comes from The Guardian. While this is a step in the right direction and certainly a cause for celebration, unfortunately, it's not a silver bullet in the complex fight against malaria. Before the R21 vaccine is ruled out for wider use, there are important points to consider to meet the needs of countries with a high malaria burden such as the amount of international funding available for its production and equitable distribution. Meanwhile, it's still lacking the WHO's endorsement. Cautious optimism is warranted, as there's a long way to go. We have our final nerd narrative of today. It says there's a 42% chance that global malaria mortality rates will be reduced by 90% compared to 2015 rates by 2030. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, April 14th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Melissa Topshire, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.